Hi, I'm Jan. And I'm Lynn. Lamplighters is a community that encourages women to grow in our faith through the study of God's Word. No matter who you are or where you are, no matter the time or experience you've had following Jesus, or if you haven't had any experience at all, we are grateful to be on the journey with you and look forward to become more of who God created us to be. So, Jan, today I'm excited to say we have a special edition podcast. We do, a very special edition podcast because we have a special treat for our listeners with a special friend. Um, In preparation for our study in the fall, and sorry, you have to tune in next week to find out what that is, um, we have invited one of our dear friends to come and give us a primer on the entire Bible. Okay, no no pressure there, Jim. Right. (laughs) Jim Singleton is with us today. He is a child of a pastor, a pastor, married to a pastor, and now uh, mentors pastors and also teaches new pastors. So you can tell Jim has been immersed in the Bible practically all of your life. And uh, I think it's certainly qualified to give us an overview or actually whatever he wants to tell us, we are excited to hear. So, Jim, you're up. Well, thank you, Jan, and thank you, Lynn. And it is great to be back touching Covenant, even though I can't see Covenant right at this minute. I can see two of the people of Covenant at this moment. Uh, The thought of being in a Lamplighter's Bible study just kind of tickles me. I just like that thought very much. Uh, And so... Hello from where I now live in Massachusetts. I'm about 25 miles north of Boston in a little uh, hamlet named Ipswich, Massachusetts. And it was founded in 1634. So it's been around longer than lamplighters by a year or two. (laughs) Just a little bit. And I think what I'd love to reflect with you on today is just about reading scripture. And I want to talk about maybe three different layers that come to that reading of scripture. And for some, they come in a sequential order. For some, they don't quite always arrive. Mm -hmm. Um, For some, they come maybe out of order. Um, But as you think about reading scripture, I think it's important to note that there are multiple stories going on at once and and that y- you want to be at least aware of those multiple stories. So if Lynn and Jan are okay, I thought I would start with the one that tends to show up first. Sure, go for it. And the one that tends to show up first when you are getting a person into the Word for the first time is something I would call the yellow highlighter version of reading scripture. <laughs> or we could call it the magnet on the refrigerator oh, yeah, version of reading scripture. And that is that we're really looking in this vast, enormous book uh, that has 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books and infinite kinds of genres of literature, we kind of go, well, what am I doing with all of this? This mm-hmm. is like, it's written over a very long period of time, maybe a thousand years and 66 different books and it's dizzying. So we kind of say, let, let me just find the little, the little Easter egg that's hiding mm-hmm. amidst all of the bushes and look at that. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I think I'm going to get out my yellow highlighter and I'm going to highlight that. I'm going to try to do that. Have no anxiety about anything. Yeah, right. But in everything, (laughs) by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. That's a good one. Let's highlight that. In fact, let's put it on a magnet. And I call this versitis. It's kind of like bursitis, which you may (laughs) have in your shoulder. But versitis is focusing the attention on individual nuggets. And we sort of almost build what I would call stepping stones from Mm. one of those verses to another one and then to another one. And then we get in a book like Leviticus and there are not many stepping stones. And you kind of go, well... Well, we try not to go into Leviticus. Not long. No. Not for very long. (laughs) Um, But there's some incredible nuggets there and a, a big story there. So I think First way of reading scripture that comes most natural to most new people starting to read scripture is to find the yellow highlighted verses. Now, mm-hmm. let me just ask Lynn and Jan, have you ever done that? Yes, I still do oh, it yeah. sometimes. You should look at my Bible. It's underlined and I put little dates by the verse mm-hmm. to remind me what was going on at mm-hmm. the time, why that was so meaningful to me. And oh, yeah. Now, sometimes you find people over time kind of have to buy a whole pack of colored pens because they start marking different (laughs) kinds of things in different kinds of colors. Promises are one thing and statements about God are another and our identity is another. So Mm -hmm. that gets to be sophisticated highlighting, but... It's still highlighting. It's still highlighting. We're we're going from stepping stone to stepping stone. Exactly. The, The second way, which in my opinion has been one of lamplighter's strengths is to take a book of the Bible or sometimes maybe a theme of the Bible and really let you go from page one to the last page of Philippians and see what that whole letter to the Philippians is doing rather than just landing on the hot verses. Mm -hmm. And when you develop that art, then you realize that a letter is just one side of what is actually a conversation because we don't have the letter that the Philippians wrote to Paul mm-hmm. or the letters that went back and forth to the Corinthians. So it's sort of like sitting in another room, listening to somebody you love talking on the phone and trying to estimate what the other person is saying on the other end. But that becomes a wonderful art that can be well taught in a Bible study setting like you all have of how do I read what's going on in what I might call the arc of communication in a letter. Now, reading a gospel uh, is not a two-sided conversation, but it is a way of presenting the story of Jesus. And we have four of those, and they are not the same. There are more similarities between Matthew, Mark, Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels, which means they're kind of looking through similar eyes, very different in the gospel of John. But there's a story there, and it's not just a collection of verses. John is trying to make a point. Luke is trying to make a point. And each of those has different accents, and it's not just like looking at something that is 
four identical stories, because Matthew is really trying to talk to Jews about why Jesus is the Messiah. And so he starts a story with a lineage. And he has an audience in mind. And he has a definite audience in mind. So you realize he's writing that for that audience, which is different than my normal audience, but I can take what's in that story and utilize it for the audience to whom I might be preaching or teaching. There's no gospel that highlights Jesus' relationship with women like Luke's gospel. Mm. So Luke is got a, a very strong memory of how the word of Jesus and how the kingdom of God is really impacting the poor and women and the marginalized sort of outcasts in society. The story of Zacchaeus Mm -hmm. that we sing about in Vacation Bible School. Zacchaeus was a little man, a little man. Wee little man was he. Uh, You know, that whole story is only in Luke. Because you see, he was a tax collector. And he was on the outside. outside. And so you will find stories of people on the outside that are highlighted there. And so a little different accent. And so as you read a whole book, not Versitis, but a whole book, you begin to go, oh, this is what's going on in this particular book. Mm -hmm. Some are easier, some are harder. Revelation takes a lot of splaining to do with the book of Revelation. If you get into the minor prophets, there's a story there, but most of us do not know all the place names and people names that are there. So it takes a little more splaining to do to Mm -hmm. get that story down. But one of the great things that a Bible study like Lamplighters does is it can start tying the threads together and helping you notice the patterns and the deliberateness of the patterns. And so as important as getting highlighted verses, you start to pay attention to things like context, what came before this. Mm-hmm. What comes after this? There's an example. There's a strange little story in Mark 8 about a blind man who was healed by Jesus. And what's strange about the story is that he has to be touched twice. And you go, wait a minute. Did Jesus mess up the first time? Right. Is this a mess? Yeah. Is this an inadequate miracle? And what does that do to my view of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Or is this a paradigm? for something that each Christian should begin to ponder. Because in the very next passage, Peter makes his strong confession at Caesarea Philippi that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do men say that I am? Jesus is asking. Well, it could be this, could be this. Who do you say that I am? Ah, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Right answer, ding, 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 ding. Uh, Let's make a deal. We'd be very excited. People would be (laughs) clapping. But then when Jesus explains what the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is really like. Peter goes, no, 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 no. We're not doing it that way. Uh Uh-uh. I rebuke you, Jesus. And the text says, Peter rebukes Jesus. I don't think we're supposed to be doing that. Jan's done that a time or two. I don't know if Lynn's ever done that. But uh, telling Jesus how to run his own business, so that's the famous passage where Jesus has rather harsh words 
for Peter. And if either of you remember those harsh words, you get a bonus point. Yeah, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> that is not going to be fun to be called. But do you see what's happening here? Peter thinks he sees. Mm. But he actually doesn't see yet. He has to have a second touch, which is going to come a little later. So could it be that Mark has intentionally put this story about the second touch to alert us that Peter's going to need a second touch, to alert us that maybe Lynn and Jan and Lamplighters need to stay open for a second Second. touch? They see, if you're not paying attention to context, Mm -hmm. you never put those two things together. Or in the first chapter of Mark's gospel. He has this wonderful experience for Jesus at the baptism. And the voice at the baptism says to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What a dear thing to say. And yet in our theology of baptism, we realize that as we have now come into Christ, We now have that same position with God. And you begin to help people see, Jen, you're my beloved daughter. Mm. With you, I'm well pleased. Lynn, you're my beloved daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. And you begin to go, really? Really. That's what the the doctrine of adoption means that is in Galatians 4 and Romans 7 and 8 that We're now brought into that same relationship such that we're free to call God Abba, Father. Not because of what we've done, but because Jesus has adopted us into the family. So you read that and you go, yippee, that is a wonderful thing. I like to remember that day by day. Lynn Morton, child of the covenant. You are my beloved daughter with you. I'm well pleased. And you just need to highlight that in yellow in your Bible. But the very next verse says, then the Spirit threw Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I don't have that verse highlighted in my Bible. (laughs) But you realize suddenly that the two are right next to each other. And if left to my own devices, I might think that if I were God's beloved child, that every day with Jesus is going to be sweeter than the day before. And I would think, we're, we're going to go sit by the Mediterranean. We're going to have a big bowl of grapes. We're going to just sort of have them drop in our mouth while a cool sea breeze is blowing. And that's the life of the beloved child. Sunshine and roses. But the life of the beloved child includes time in the wilderness to be tempted. Now, Most American Christians have a very difficult time putting those two things together. Mm -hmm. We only think we got sent to the wilderness if we've been bad. And what did I do to get here? But it's only beloved ones that go to the wilderness to be shamed. And unless you put those two together and read the context, you're going to miss it. And you're going to miss a very central part of the Christian life, which is actually a thing that disappoints so many Christians, mm-hmm. because they had the impression that if I receive Jesus, everything is now going to go right. 
And then they discover it doesn't go right. And then they feel kind of like the Christian faith was like a Band-Aid on a sweaty arm and it just didn't stick. And Mm -hmm. I tried it and it didn't work. But if you learn to read a book together, now you've got something going. And now you begin to say, oh, that's what Philippians is about. That's what Mark's about. So my guess is you all have done some of that in Lamplighters through the years. So name three or four books you've walked people through in Lamplighters. What would you say? We've done, you name it. We've done all the letters. We've done Genesis. We've done First and Second Samuel. We, See? You know, I, we're avoiding Revelation, I'll just tell you well, that. But, you know. Well. And Leviticus. We haven't done that one yet either. Okay. But, but you're doing <laughs> the thing I'm talking about. And if people are paying attention— they're starting to see that Scripture is really not just a bunch of isolated verses. Each book has a story within it, and each book has some accents within it that are not in other books. And so you begin to accumulate those stories. Now, when you really get that practice started in your life. That leads you then to the third way of reading, which is what I call the grand narrative of Scripture. Now, I only call it that because people like Christopher Wright and N.T. Wright and many other people are, are helping us see there is, a, there is a big story in all of Scripture that each individual book is playing a part in. And that big story is to remind us of at least four or five big, big themes. Number one, God created this place, and it was good. And you heard that in Genesis 1 and 2, but you hear that in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. You hear that in a variety of places. You even see that Jesus finds himself going out to a quiet, lonely place in nature to pray Mm -hmm. because creation is really good. And then you see a theme that is all over Scripture, which is secondly, the fall. Because chapter 3 of Genesis starts us into this story of seeing, whoops, (laughs) we have done messed up this nice thing we have been given. And that messing up has layers and layers and layers. And pretty much every book in the Bible is going to tell you stories about either the fall and or its consequences Mm -hmm. and or its temporary remedies like the law, like the temple. And the desire is to learn to lay down being Lord of our own lives and the rebellion that that entails to come back into a relationship with God and you just see all kinds of stories, First and Second Samuels, filled with that. Mm-hmm. The book of Judges has great moments where we kind of get it back together, and then moments where it all falls apart, and there's that haunting phrase toward the end that everyone was doing what was right in their own mm-hmm. eye, which is the utter epitome of the chaos of the fall. And the fall is going to splash you deeply with things like shame mm-hmm. and guilt and 
the tendency to hide and the tendency to blame and the competition among the genders and the frustration with work and all of these things that are right there in Genesis 3 are then just blown like a little dandelion set of seeds all over the yard. And suddenly you see them all over scripture and you keep going back and go, aha, this is another symptom of the fall. This is another symptom of the fall. This is another one. And so they're just replete. The third great theme is that God wants reconciliation with these rebels. And so that's why Jesus came. There was there was temporary measures that we hoped would get us to reconciliation, but as the book of Hebrews reminds us, those were not lasting. Those mm. were temporary until Jesus would come and actually bring us back into relationship with God, enter a side door back into a, a portion of Eden as he brought to us the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is that grand New Testament theme that you keep finding Jesus came and preached the good news of the kingdom. So he's inviting us back into this realm where God is reigning. That's what the kingdom means, the realm in which God is reigning, which also means it's not the realm in which you are reigning. (laughs) But that realm overlaps with the old age. So we're still for a time fraught with the already and the not yet. Mm -hmm. Kingdom is coming and it now is both. And so the reconciliation theme is learning to accept that we are accepted. Learning that Jesus Christ has borne our guilt and our shame and we don't have to hide and we don't have to blame, though those tendencies like a bad hangover will remain with us in this world, but we now have freedom. And and Paul writes to the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Mm. And that reconciliation leads us to the fourth word that is all through scripture, which is restoration that comes from our transformation. We are not the old person forever. It's a struggle. There are parts of it that still are, but you begin to move into this realm of, oh boy, I can actually start to see that I'm becoming the person God created Mm -hmm. me to be. And it's becoming new again. And so that theme, which theologians will call sanctification and the other one justification, is a lifelong process. But I love every hint of what the restored life looks like. You know, Paul says, in Christ, there is no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. You see, that's an aspirational picture of what life in the kingdom looks like. We don't have to have the gender wars anymore. We don't have to have the racial wars anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't have to have the status in life wars anymore. Zacchaeus is at the table. You know, we could have 
a church at Levi's house where only the messy people gathered. <laughs> you know, that there's a whole picture there that, again, most Christians don't even quite imagine. Can we live into that? Yes. The church is to prov- be a provisional demonstration of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's intending for Lynn and Jan and Jim to live into a restored life. Now, it's not going to fully happen on this earth. but Boy, every time we take a step in there, it is good. And many would say then the fifth layer of this grand narrative is to realize that we become sent people who are going out into God's rescue party to bring others into this reconciliation and restoration. And the word mission in Latin literally means sent, missio, sent. And, and it's Right there in the nature of God, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you in the same way. And and again, most people around a church reading Scripture think that's something that other people do. That's what professional missionaries do, or maybe professional pastors do. The New Testament, that's what everybody does. And if you haven't recognized your scent and you're still sitting, then we got a little more restoration to do. That would be kind of a big part of what it means to be restored. But I like to put it as a fifth one just to highlight it in this age because we can't wait now for people to show up at church hungry. We're going to have to go to them. That other day of American Christendom is over. And we've got to remember, we're sent people. And it's when you read that whole story. And see, when you begin to see, for instance, in Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees his fallenness. He sees himself being restored by the tongs from the fire touching his lips. And then God says, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. There's that send word. Way back in Isaiah, the whole people of Israel were blessed to be a blessing. That goes all the way back to Genesis. They were to be a sent people, a provisional demonstration of what God intended for the world. And so the theme run through like a big narrative arc on a, in a, grand kind of story that actually gets mirrored in things like literature and movies where you set something up, then there's a problem that occurs and these lovers get separated and then you have to move toward a reconciliation of that and you get to see a little picture of restoration. Rarely do you see the scent part in the movie, but they live happily ever after as the old fairy tales would go. But that's that's the story of scripture. And when you live long enough like lamplighters do in the Word. That's what you begin to see. And it's just sort of like knitting all of Scripture together with these 
no longer colored pins, but you begin to see the colored lines weaving all the way through Scripture. There's the fall. There's redemption. There's restoration. There's being sent. And it just makes Scripture even richer. So there's the thought for today. Oh, that's a lot to chew on. That is a lot to chew on. And it's very exciting um, because at Lamplighters and, you know, and probably in any Bible study, you have people who have never been in the Word before, and you have people who have been in it their entire lives, and it works for both. That is the beauty of Scripture. And this, to be able to pick a Scripture to get you into the Word is very important. We're not diminishing being able to do that. Not at all. But to be able to stand back and look at this tapestry and hear about this tapestry being formed, to really attack each scripture as, okay, where is this being fit into God's word? Just opens it up in just a beautiful way. And I thank you for that description. Um, It's definitely something I will be thinking about when I go forward in my studies. Man, you know, the, the first stage of reading When you get a person in the Word for the first time and you want them to build the spiritual practice of reading Scripture themselves day by day, there has to be a feedback loop in that that makes me want to do it again, a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So it's when I read and I land on one of those stepping stones, I land on that yellow highlighter, I go, okay, if this is worth reading. And if I read a day and... It's kind of like, well, that was interesting, but I don't get anything out of it. That's a negative feedback loop that makes me not want to do it again. When I work out, I like to go home and weigh and see that two pounds have been lost. And when (laughs) I I work out and it looks like I drank so much water, I gained half a pound, (laughs) then I kind of go, you know, I don't think I want to do that tomorrow. That was a lot of push-ups for nothing. Um, But that's the early stage of the word. You want to help people find that stepping stone to get them to the next day Mm -hmm. and the next day. So it is a totally appropriate way of starting reading scripture, stepping stone to stepping stone. But you know what I love about that? I love your exercise analogy, because isn't it easier when you do it with somebody? Totally. You you go walk with somebody or whatever. And so this, the whole part of the feedback loop is on those days when you say, you know, I didn't get anything out of that. And Lynn said, oh, Jen, this is what I saw. Right. And you go, oh, so it's that community coming together. Especially in the small groups. Yes. When, when you realize, how did you get that? I just didn't even see that. Yeah. And the, and it's an encouragement to women to offer what they've been given right. because somebody else may not have that. That's right. You know, and all, all of these ways of reading Scripture, it's important to be in a community doing it. I agree. Yeah. It's very hard to do it only alone in a solitary fashion because I need that second and third and fourth touch. And being with you, that may be the way Jesus helped open my eyes. Mm-hmm. Very in that passage, he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around, which means he just sees a shape, but he doesn't really see features. And when I'm with other people in Bible study, it's as if Jesus just touched me. I'm like, I never saw that. That's great. So keep reading. (laughs) And as you read long through the years, start noticing context. 
and patterns. And as you read through more years, realize, oh, this is the whole big story of this very disparate set of 66 books. It's trying to tell a big story. Which is a perfect segue into our introduction of our study, which we're going to do next week. So people have to come back. But Jim, thank you for coming today. Thank you for taking the time. And thank you for such a long, faithful life of being in God's Word mm. and and experiencing the redemptive power of it and the transformative power of it and being able to hand that to other people. Truly, you have been sent to us today. Hey, Joy. We thank you. Thank you. Until next time. <laughs>